the needle on the record. Welcome to Wage Cucking with JMO. Welcome to another episode of Wage Cucking with Jamo. Today we have a good friend of ours, special guest, Brian from Layer Zero Labs. Hello. Welcome. Yeah, yeah welcome. Thanks so much, dude. So funny, uh, I actually had no idea that that was officially the podcast title. Someone saw it in my calendar today and they're like, Wage Cucking with Jamo, what's that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going on the podcast, but like, that's definitely not the name. It's, it's the name. Um, that's awesome. I love it. All right, well, we'll we'll try to keep it PG thirteen today for uh, for your investors' sake. Um, <laughs> uh, but before I get started, uh, give me a little bit of your history, how you got into crypto, and I, I guess a little bit of what you're working on now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, same way that most of us did coming coming from poker background, right? So, like, heard about Bitcoin twenty ten. 2011 online poker, like Black Friday happened. I was out of a job, moved to Montreal for the summer, but then came back and like started a company. So I actually didn't touch crypto. I like knew about it. Everyone in crypto, everyone in poker was like using it to now move money around the sites because we were all bricked from payment processors. Uh, but I didn't really touch it till 2013. So I started a DFS site, kind of like inception of uh, DraftKings, FanDuel, kind of that era got acquired when that whole industry rolled up. And then like 2013 got into crypto a bunch. So it was mining, you know, racks of Bitcoin mining in my garage with my brother and my brother-in-law, you know, trading all the old school shit coins. So Razor and all this stuff, I, I passed on the Ethereum ICO for 10 Bitcoin, like with, you know, an hour to go because my brother convinced me we should buy a sync master node instead. All these terrible <laughs> decisions. But, you know, we were just like, we were just in it for a little while. And then like 2015, everything died. So I just, I, I went back, I played poker. I did uh, some academic research for a little bit, started a company in the space like end of 2016, early 2017 with Dan Chen from Andreessen. And then was just like, you know, did full 2017, 2018, like boom, bust with everybody else, uh, which was just chaos. And then like on-chain, like smart contracts actually started like doing things. And like, that's when I got into like actually like writing, uh, writing contracts or like working with Ryan and Caleb together to like building stuff. And so we're just messing around on a bunch of different things like on-chain trading. And then we're, all the miners were colluding against us. Like for, we were doing ARB and Triangle ARB. And then like pre-flash bots, you just started seeing like transactions start getting inserted into blocks with zero gas paid, but like perfect block positioning you, just sandwiching you. And we're like, oh, like zero gas paid. Like it's literally rigged. Like the miners are colluding. So we're just totally wrecked. And and then like, obviously flashbots came and like commoditized this. But at the time we were just like, well, we can't do this anymore. And so then kind of got sucked in, like BSC came out and we started writing a game kind of for fun just to see them like, got this fast, cheap execution environment over here, like have some game that exists and then like roll the NFTs back to Ethereum. And actually building that, we just realized like there was no way to move things from BSC to Ethereum that was like even remotely reasonable. And that uh -huh. ultimately led us to building Layer Zero. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty interesting how the, the evolution of smart contract and blockchain technology leads to something like Layer Zero. Like um, I, I'd say maybe four or five years ago, there's basically only Ethereum that was actually used by people. I mean, there are other chains that supported smart contract functionality, but they didn't really have a user base and they didn't have very many, I'd say, useful protocols built on them. And now 
like even within Ethereum, you have like a million layer twos that have what I see as like real adoption. And then there are so many alternate layer ones that are developing technologies that are in theory, slightly better than Ethereum or competitors to Ethereum that have their own user bases. So it, it makes sense that something needs to be developed that allows chains to communicate with each other, allows for the safe bridging of assets and, and stuff like that. So let's talk a little bit about layer zero. You know, what's funny, the anytime someone talks to me about layer zero, they're like, Hey, you know, Brian, like, can you ask them when the airdrop is? Are we going to get an airdrop? Well, what kind of, what kind of, uh, what kind of airdrop are they doing? So I, I guess that's my first question. You, you don't have to answer if layer zero. Yeah. Is. When is the airdrop? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's been really interesting at how, like how crazy people have been about it. Like I just tell everybody, like anybody who says that they know something, like we still don't, you know, we still don't know in turn, right? There's like, no, nobody knows, including <laughs> us. Like there's no, like nothing, nothing is structured right now. So, and then nobody, any, anybody who says they has a, have a clue does not for sure. You, you can, you can tell us um, after the show, how we actually get the airdrop. <laughs> Save the author for later. No, but I, I see on Twitter all the time, like specifically with layer zero, there's like, this is how you qualify for the layer zero airdrop thread one of like 37 or something like that but yeah. uh, um, I actually just want to talk a little bit about like the the, the current airdrop model and um, like some of the projects that uh, layer zero is partnered with that, that I personally use should we first define perhaps what layer zero is what it does the product yeah yeah sure. and and also just very briefly what you can use it for just something simple yeah so like the way in the more technical sense the way that I think about layer zero is the way that I think about a packet on the internet. It was really what we were trying to make is like this base primitive of just like move information, right? And like a, a packet on the internet is just like a computer here and a computer here. And it's just like this computer generates some state data, some information, you have some bytes, you move it and this computer like ingests the bytes and interprets it and does something. So it's just like compute, payload or bytes compute. And like that base primitive, you can build like, like that's how we talk now. That's how like everything that we do comes from that, right? And so like layer zero is arbitrary contract invocation with a bytes array. It's just invoke a contract here, take the resulting bytes, invoke a contract there. So that's like the technical sense of how I equate it. In, the, in a simple like high level sense, it's just messaging between chains, right? So send any arbitrary data. It can be, you know, bridge in NFT. It can be bridge asset value. It can be, uh, people have done crazy things and like, kill a boss in a game that's in like a subnet on this chain and like send a message <laughs> that mutates the metadata <laughs> of your NFT that lives on Ethereum that then wow. like syncs to your Twitter hexagon profile picture. So like, as you do something on chain in game, like in real time, like your profile picture like evolves, right? So people have done all sorts of crazy things, but you can send sort of any arbitrary data across any chain. And I think it's also worthwhile to add that anybody could really program this for themselves. But as we have noticed over the years, especially with bridge hacks, and uh, but even something as simple as uh, maybe the difficulty for a stablecoin issuer to move coins from one chain to another. What we've seen is there's either bugs when, when you make this, it is not that easy, or there's subtle bugs, or when you upgrade, as I think we saw in perhaps wormhole, what happens is that you're expecting to, for example, remove USDT from Polygon, and it should reappear on Ethereum, but instead someone just mints themselves infinite USDT on 
on Ethereum because you the, a zero was supposed to be a one and like the auditor missed yep. it. Is that correct? Yeah, the, there's there's always issues with the uh, asset mismatch uh, across chains. It, it's difficult. So this like three different times this happened with Wormhole. That's how Nomad also got hacked. Was like upgrading contracts. Um, basically, a huge amount. Like I could talk about this side of things forever yeah. so if you guys but, so, if you guys want to go down that rabbit hole you tell me but yeah no sure. but I was, I was just going to say basically uh it is possible for anyone to make this but it is extremely likely that they will make mistakes that will cost them dearly and we have seen very prestigious startups fall into this trap over and over again and get really hurt so this is why you made this this lego block right this this primitive yeah i mean 100 like ultimately we thought it was like one there was nothing nobody had built something that we would trust our own money to we're like of like we wanted to build something and of all the things we could build on like we would not trust them with like single digit millions let alone like billions of dollars we just thought the security was kind of like a joke at the time and then you kind of like fast forward to now and it's just like how do you build these like we felt very 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 strongly that like if anything is upgradable, like it's going to get hacked eventually, like people are just going to make mistakes. And again, has happened just so many times since then that that has like very much been proven right. And then I think the other, you know, it's just like, how do you build? How do you set up security? And then like bug bounties, right? Like we've got the literal two biggest bug bounties in the entire world at like 15 million independently for both Layer Zero and Stargate. Like the next highest is like two and a half million for Wormhole. And then like everybody else is like nothing, like literally nothing. It's just like a combination of a bunch of things. But I think people are way too fast and loose in general. I think like everybody it's so easy to just want to have the ability to upgrade contracts. Like it sucks to have everything be fully immutable because it's just like hard to migrate anything. It's hard to like add anything. But the downside is like you write the code once and you make it hardened and then like you don't get hacked, which I think is a necessary like just underlying requirement in this space. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the current use cases of layer zero. So there's, I think only two protocols that I've used personally that have uh, use layer zero. Um, the the first being Stargate, which is basically just a multi-chain bridge, and the the newer one, Radiant Finance, which is I'd say like a combination of what like Ave or Compound is um, with interesting tokenomics similar to Curve. So it's like a mesh of Curve, Ave, and Compound with but but the liquidity is derived across chain or interchain concepts. So I was just curious, they're both being used pretty heavily now, I think, but are, are there any like current or future use cases of layer zero you see coming up that will gain prominence or be widely used? Yeah, I think the single use case I've been most excited about since the beginning has basically been cross-chain lending. Like, and I think Radiant does a, a really good job on some of the interesting components. And I've, I've told them this, but I, the thing that I want to see is like, you cover 95% of capital use cases. If you just have like native asset plus stable on every chain. So like Sol USDC, ETH USDC, uh, BNB USDC, well, you know, whatever, some native assets stable. And all you want to be able to do is like collateralize my soul and like borrow stable or you or, mm -hmm. or ETH on the other chain, right? Take out some asset position of like native chain or stable on another chain. And like that alone, like two assets on every chain of just like native gas plus a stable coin and just collateralize on chain A and take out debt position on chain B, like that underlying primitive 
takes away like all of the need for wrapped assets, all of the need for like all of these different things that currently exist and like carry massive risk. And there's already like abundant supply on all of these chains. There's already the stables there. There's already the native assets there. And so like that primitive right now, the, the difficulties or the reason that it's hard is the ability to, to price the assets for liquidations. Cause like you collateralize Sol and you borrow like Phantom. Now you need to have like a Sol Phantom liquidation, like back on the chain, right? Repaying the debt is very easy. Everything else is very easy, but you need to be able to liquidate that pair efficiently. Um, and they're just like, aren't good or like robust oracles on all these chains to like do this well right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the reason that this doesn't exist. But I think that primitive alone will just be like massive. I think it disrupts tens of billions of dollars of current capital and is super, super interesting. There's a bunch of others, but I think that is like the single use case for the past like year and a half to two years have been like, this will definitely happen and uh -huh. we'll disrupt a ton. And then it's like, we still don't have it. So are there projects in the works that are doing something similar to that right now? So I think everybody wants to do it and everybody has thought about it. And again, you, you need to, it's like an Oracle problem more than is a money market problem. You need to solve the ability to price the assets uh -huh. to process liquidations of these uh -huh. dynamic pairs. And so like, uh, yeah, I, I know, I mean, Radiance is thinking about it. A bunch of people are thinking about it. Uh, yeah. it will, it will happen for sure. I'll, I'll keep, speaking into existence until somebody builds it. So. <laughs> yeah, it, it, would, it would definitely be, it'd be interesting. I, I think another issue would, would also be like sourcing with the liquidity or figuring out how to source the liquidity to to, to execute liquidations. Because like uh, one of the, the bigger problems, if you look at, um, I think, Solend on Solana, yep. basically when, when FTX died out, a lot of the, the liquidity on Soldex has died out as well. And they had like these large positions, like for example, people were borrowing USDC against Sol um, in large amounts. But if there's no on-chain Sol liquidity to, to execute the liquidations, then you have a problem of bad debt entering the ecosystem, which can basically shut down the entire project if, if like the biggest positions can't be liquidated dated in a, in an effective way to, to recover the the borrowed assets so uh yeah it, i it's remember pretty... watching that soul end whale like almost almost getting liquidated or starting to get liquidated uh yeah. it was it was super interesting well, what they ended up doing actually is they 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 realized that if if the liquidation happened on chain, like the the protocol would just be defunct, right? So they they, they manually yep. stepped in and said we we would liquid, liquidate this on like centralized exchanges to get a better price to recover the assets. And then there there was huge backlash from the community or just from people saying that like, uh, so like you're gonna violate the code is law. People is saying that like this is like a violation of um, you're basically taking this guy's assets instead of just like going with the code and and manually executing the the liquidation. So yeah, it's with all these borrow lending platforms, I feel like it's pretty interesting how they've evolved over time. Um, in terms of well, like the in, initially all we had was like ETH lend, which became Aave, and then Compound and stuff like that, and and, and now like but we have stuff like Radiant, which is super interesting where it, it's basically the the version one of these lend borrow platforms but like on steroids where you can source liquidity or deposit liquidity but borrow on like multiple chains so it's yep. a pretty interesting future we have i wanted to talk a little bit about your thoughts on like the current ethereum layer two season well, whatever people are calling it these days but uh, <laughs> the recent arbitrum airdrop and like i guess in the past like six months the the optimism airdrop and also the the, the adoption of those chains the you, you see people flocking to, to zk 
Sync right now, even though there's like absolutely nothing actually on ZK Sync, just the anticipation for the airdrop. But how, how do you see the future um, in terms of Ethereum and other chains as like these L2s launch? And like, there's so many in the works right now that there's like Starkware, which has like raised billions of dollars and is supposed to be an improvement over the 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 current L2s. So how, how do you see the like the future of Ethereum? Like, are, are people going to be flocking to to one of these L2s is is one L2 going to take over the majority market share? Or do you see all these these different chains coexisting with each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think okay. And the protocol stance, like I've tried to take the position that like we should maintain, like we should be super agnostic. Like, we don't care ultimately whether there's like a bunch of orthogonal layer ones or like only Ethereum and a thousand layer twos. Ultimately, in the world of like only Ethereum and a thousand layer twos, like you need horizontal composability between the L2s because like nobody wants to like do something on Nitro and then like wait seven days to get over to do something on Nova, right? Like yeah. you need to have this fungibility of assets between them. You need to have composability like between all of those rollups. I think it's really interesting to see how like it's sort of like how layer ones have played out as well. You have, you have people who are trying to tackle like full stack things. You have people who are, you know, I, I guess monad is is more like just trying to roll its own its own layer one but on the evm but you have you basically we're going to consolidate everything on a single chain versus we're going to do what avalanche did and make a bunch of subnets right and that's mm -hmm. like our uh, like optimism is basically we're going to have everybody on the op stack and everybody's going to sit horizontally arbitrum is like everybody is going to be a layer three on top of this and the question mm -hmm. is really like are all chains going to hyper specialize uh or are they not and like i think it's a, a super interesting question i don't know that i have like the firmest of opinion on. I think like execution environments and computing have gone towards like very specialized environments where like you build an application now and you have things that are hyper optimized for like compute, for storage, for all of these. Mm -hmm. But it's only to a certain amount, right? Like you have something that's optimized for like storage that covers 99% of use cases. Like everyone just throws it in the S3 or just like does whatever, right? There's these these solutions of things that people use for how things are structured. And then there's not necessarily like hyper optimization on like individual application level use cases. And that's really the battle now is like, is every game in every application going to have its own chain? Are we going to have Uniswap chain? Are we going to have, you know, game a chain and so on? Or are we going to get an environment that like generalizes well enough for all of them? I think it's more likely that we have like a semi-generalizable environment than every application basically running its in, its entire infra or like some sort of stack of its own chain. But I don't think we're like right now, we're not even close to that in scale. Like any yeah. meaningful chain, any meaningful game just like breaks the underlying chain. I remember Moonflower Farmer on Aurora. It was like, okay, Aurora, great. Like all transactions are free. Uh, you don't pay any gas, like nothing. And then the game launched. And just like everything was dying. It's like, okay, well, now you you pay for some transactions. And it's like, actually, now it's just like a queue because like, you know, it's like block space is a commodity. And this yeah. is, I ended this huge debate around the girly bridge where like block space has value. Like you can't just make block space free because it will just like, it will get consumed immediately. Yeah. And so yeah. like that itself is, is its own interesting challenge. It's like, how do you take this thing that has inherent value and still make it accessible enough to be like wi widely used and adopted without being too expensive? It's a hard problem. Yeah. Um, as as the demand for block space goes, it, it becomes a problem for a lot of chains. Like basically every chain is fine in, at inception when there's like limited user base, limited transactions. But then like once there's a stress test for the scalability, if suddenly a game or a dApp becomes popular on that chain and, and it takes up a decent amount of the block space a lot of them run into issues of, of scaling and like basically fees and 
downtime and stuff like that. You, you see any even in the major chains, like uh, I know Solana is pretty notorious for just going offline for quite periods, of, uh, long periods of time. And, and recently, Avalanche has had that similar problem. Like the Avalanche C chain has been been down quite a bit. So uh, off of that, uh, so that there are quite a few right now. There are quite a few different takes on how cross chain bridging works, or even like layer one to layer two bridges. You have stuff that's basically like a centralized deposit address, and then like people are manually bridging and then you, you have more advanced stuff where it's you know like based on uh, like a trustless code system and there are quite a few companies or protocols that have developed their own cross-chain bridges along with like the, the like for example arbitrum on ethereum has, has their own uh, native bridge but then also there's third-party bridge providers that can bridge the same assets for maybe a slightly higher fee but also you don't have the the wait times so so with, with all this going on right now how, how do you see the future of cross-chain bridging especially like um, are, are, are is there going to be fragmented across like a bunch of protocols or is there going to be like one set way to do things um which like method I'd say did you see is like the most optimal or the, or the most to gain traction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very likely to be like winner take most. I like, I think there's just nobody wants to have to write six different interfaces to interface with, uh, you know, no applications because makes it a nightmare. If everybody has to use a different protocol or a different standard to like go to every individual chain. I think like rollups, the way the bridges work now, like you no know, rollups function nicely because they're like is a canonical contract that is source of truth on Ethereum. Everything that is like not to that. And it's a reason why like you have Arbitrum to Ethereum and back, but like you can't go anywhere else from there. You can't mm -hmm. go inbound, which is why all the third-party bridges come in, right? And so I do... I do think it's largely winner take most. I think like Stargate's model when we built it was really to solve the issue of like us thinking wrapped assets really suck in general, just for like the risk properties, like the risk is carried by the user and not by the LP where like everything that the user is used to and all of DeFi is like LP carries risk and like the user just uses it. And then like, goes, you know, if you're not actively in the protocol, you don't think about it. And like wrapped assets introduce this thing where like, if you have the asset at all, like one day it may be worth zero uh, overnight. And like, sorry, if, if bad things happen. So like Stargate's method was basically that. What I think I've seen since then is like the, the standard we released, like the OFT standard, which is really like core bridging. Like we always thought like that should disrupt underlying bridges. Native assets should adopt this in like there is no reason why you need to lean on external bridge providers paying four, six, eight, ten 10 bips and like having wrapped asset risk of like the underlying bridge provider being like, well, I'm actually going to charge you 20 bips now to come back. Or like I got hacked or, you know, all these things that have happened. And so I always thought it would, it would basically move to that way. We're like, all that you're doing when you're moving assets is like, again, just executing code on both sides. So like you can do that directly in the contracts itself. So like the Stargate token contract is an OFT and so like, if you want to move assets from, from chain A to chain B, it's just done directly in the Stargate contract. There's like zero fee, it's just the price of gas. And so now like things that have adopted this is like pancake swaps, cake token is an OFT, BTCB from Avalanche, which has like nine, 10,000 Bitcoin now through it is an OFT, Trader Joe's token, a bunch of others. And basically like you can move in the BTCB, you move 5,000, 10,000 Bitcoin immediately from chain A to chain B like complete supply paying the price of gas, right? So you go from Avalanche to Arbitrum, you're going to pay like, I don't know, like 13 cents to move like a bajillion dollars, right? Um, there is no like external bips. There's no like friction. So like if you have that, especially when you get that for stables, like now you can like, like if you have that at the stable level, like now you can arb pairs for market makers like 
unbelievably thinly. Like just to have free flowing liquidity to be able to arb all asset pairs across all chains and DEXs, like just is, is so efficient. So I think everything will move that direction in one way or another. I think for sure, majority of assets will go through that standards, way more capital efficient in general, way less cost of capital overall in terms of like how it gets moved and friction. Yeah. So I, I think like that is my vote for how things will evolve over time, but we'll see right now, more and more protocols. Like I think it's like the second largest, second or third largest use case right now on layer zero is just like OFT tokens moving back and forth. Okay. Okay. Uh, I noticed, um, You've been tweeting out a little bit about the the number of messages sent across. Excuse me, uh, layer zero. Uh, I'm curious: is it just from these like major protocols like Stargate and, and Radiant using them, or are there like like individuals or you know maybe projects in stealth that are using the layer zero technology that we don't really know about? Like, what what causes this adoption? Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely bridges like first and foremost, like I think the top three. So the top three applications in the last 30 days are like um, Stargate, uh, Aptos Bridge, Gurley Bridge. Uh, okay. So those, those are the top three. Uh, I think they combined for like, 500 and maybe 600,000 messages or something between the three of them. Then it's DeFi kingdoms. And then it's like, you know, a, a bunch of others, everything sort of like filters in there. And so like, that is definitely the majority of, uh, of, of usage being driven right now is, is some, somewhere around that. Yeah. I think the top three use cases are 70 to 80% of, of overall volume. So largely bridge, uh, bridge driven. And then you have, again, individual tokens, the, the cake token, the Stargate yeah. token, the Joe token. And then you have like, again, DeFi kingdom, some of the NFT stuff, uh, less on NFTs and more like, um, gaming related, uh, pure NFTs. Like you move a pudgy penguin, you move it once every three months, not like yeah. 30 times a day. Right. Yeah. So the uh, bulk of it is, is around that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, general about tokenomics in terms of these protocols. So layer zero is basically a, a service provider to these pr protocols that are using its technology. And I guess the general sentiment right now in crypto is everything needs a token, right? Like if, if you have a protocol, if you have a project, you want to re release a token. And even if you look at the, the Ethereum layer twos, it's sort of questionable what the, the value proposition of the token is like if, if you look at optimism or arbitrum you don't use those those recently released tokens as gas paying tokens on chain i looked into arbitrum token for a bit and they they have like a general like you can delegate it and you can participate in governance but that that feels like sort of the the oldest trick in the book is to release a token and say it's for governance and in reality it's it's just a guise to try to develop some use case that doesn't really exist for the token. Um, and then if you look at um, like what, what Radiant's doing, they have a pretty interesting take on, on tokenomics where basically it's a borrow lend platform where you get rewards for both borrowing and lending that are incentivized by the Radiant token. And in order to get a multiplier on your rewards, you have to, it's sort of like the curve or convex model where you lock your token, but you also have to pair it in, in an LP pool. And I think you need to maintain 5% of your, the token value versus your LP in order to, to get into a, a certain threshold. So um, I, I know there's nothing launched or, or nothing announced for, for layer zero right now, but have you thought about if you were to launch a token, like what would the like use case be? Like how, how would you, how would it gain like value adoption, stuff like that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so, okay. One caveat I do want to say is uh, you said layer zero is kind of like a service provider, the applications. And one thing is like, 
one thing we were adamant about when we were building is actually hated like almost every other messaging protocol like is basically a service provider. Mm -hmm. Like ultimately, if you're wormhole or whoever and you get hit with like some court order or something, like you're just shutting down. Like you're just not, you're, you know, you're not processing. You're going to censor whatever you have to censor. Like at the end of the day, you are a service provider and applications building on that. Like when we built layer zero, one of the very core things we did is like we're a protocol, not a service, meaning that like the layer zero endpoints are immutable. Anybody can run the roles of like Oracle and Relayer within. Anybody can move messages and every message is 100% masked and non-sorter enforced. So like you can never censor an individual message. You either relay every single message for an application or none of them. So like as soon as you don't, as soon as you wanted to censor one, you would never be able to relay for that application ever again. Like it's stuck at that nonce until you process that nonce. And so like if we disappeared today, like died, fell off the face of the earth, whatever, again, government, whatever, any issue happened, every single application would still be able to function. Like they could okay. step in and run their own infrastructure. Anybody can run their own infrastructure. Uh -huh. So like we do not have the ability to like stop or do anything at the protocol level. And it was like built very specifically by design, basically to, to do that, like built as a protocol, not as a service. Uh -huh. um, so just like, my, my, my own, uh, you know, okay, my own okay. pet peeve of like, they're all, all the other ones are services, but you know, okay. there's their protocol. Yeah. So uh, no, in terms of like, what, what would it actually look like a token side? Like, right. Ultimately at the end of the day to have like secure messaging at scale, like you need to have economic security tied in, like everything that you would think about needs to tie into that economic security. So I think stuff like Eigenlayer has got people thinking a lot about this, like what does rehypothecated stake from chains look like when you're using them on like interconnected channels, kind of like uh, IBC's kind of like um, interchain staking module, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of people who are like thinking about this now, we've spent a bunch of time thinking about it. I don't think I'm super comfortable talking about like exactly what that might look like, but, but in general, like very strong agree like there has to be underlying demand for the token itself and actual usage which means like if not by default which you don't want to add friction so like not by default at least optionally with strong benefits for the underlying like on a per message basis every single message uh, basically utilizing it one way or another per contract basis and then basically uh in terms of like securing overall network state so i think like those are like the three levers that matter the most in terms of like ultimately figuring out like what what that looks like all right it, it sounds like you thought about this a, a decent amount. So maybe maybe a token <laughs> is closer than we think. I wanted to talk a little bit about like the the business side of things. Like I, I know you've you've done like uh, various crypto VC stuff in the past, and you're essentially I don't know if this is true or not, but but you're essentially like r r running Layer Zero as a company, like you're management or helping manage the treasury and stuff like that. I'm curious if you have any takes on like the the current landscape of like in investment and VC. Is that I know you've probably dealt with quite a few. Like I know you, you you've raised funds in the past and, and you've dealt like with a bit of VC. But the the previous I'd say like the previous bull cycle, that there was always this stigma against crypto VCs where they basically they would get in and like seed rounds at pretty big discounts to to markets and and their entire business model was basically like these big funds would put their names on projects and then not necessarily get equity, but get like tokens at, um, at a, I'd say below market rate and their business model yep. would be just like dumping these tokens in order to, to realize profits. So yeah, yeah, just your general thoughts, like going forward, like running a crypto com company and man managing the treasury, like the, the runway, taking um, VC investment. How, how do you see the, the future of like these crypto, especially emerging crypto companies that are looking for funding right now? And, you know, like the, 
the, the big B, uh, BC funds. When When is this going to air? I want, I want to see what I can talk about versus not talk about. Uh, I don't know, Andreas. Very, very soon. Like, like uh, how week. soon? Okay. All right. In that case, I can't talk about some things. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 say, I'll, I'll say other things. So general environment. I, I think the environment is still like, it's it's definitely tightened a lot, right? Like you see valuations for, for early companies before everyone's every raising it. Crazy valuation, super early on, pre-anything. The market was just like, like it has been every kind of big cycle. There's more capital deployed than there were good founders. And like everybody was chasing that. Ultimately, like for brand value to be associated with the best deals. And then also like to, to just get into sort of the best, uh, you know, need to allocate capital and you need to do it in a way that like aligns you with the best founders, basically. Uh, I think like people are still writing checks. I think the fundraising environment is still like reasonably active overall. I think you need to like be more differentiated now than you did before. And for us, like our approach to fundraising, I don't know, man, we, we had such like a, such an atypical fundraising process, right? Like in any of our rounds, we've never actively been fundraising. We got preempted in all of our rounds. Every single time people were trying to take the entire round, our last round, so the round at a billion was like um, 1.65 billion in commitments for like a $135 million round, right? Oh, wow. um, so it was just like unbelievably oversubscribed. Obviously, we ended up getting like this, this well, at the time. So we tried to be pretty strategic about it. We had the optionality to, but like early on, all of our investors, if you look at them, were all like DeFi focused. Like we were very DeFi focused and it was just like, we want the largest stakeholders of every single DeFi protocol. We want to have like warm intros. We want to be like very close, like in, in sort of like working with these protocols integrate because like that's what's going to drive success and then we got to the rounded a billion it was more like okay like originally was me and my two best friends like my college roommates building something for fun because like we thought it was cool and now it's like and i told all the vcs like very upfront like i was like listen like we're very comfortable with what we're building and how we're building it like we're not like we don't need technical advice we don't need like we're not we, it's not like we don't want the investment for like how to build their product or you to like coach us how to do these things. What I wanted from them was like, how do I build a world-class company? Cause like, that is the thing I had it done. Right. So our leads for the last round, we, we got like in Dreesen Horowitz, Sequoia and FTX trilead. FTX at the time we thought was running a world-class company. So I'm like, we can learn a lot from these guys. Lesson learned. But um, you know, that, that was really like, that was the thing. So we were really tried to be really selective of like, every round, what, like, what exactly are we getting out of this? And like, why do we need? And I, I, like most people in like, I've run companies in the past. I've been through fundraisers in the past where like, you just like, we just want to check, right? We just want to build the thing. Will anybody give us money to do this thing? And it's like <laughs> totally different than like, I can pick basically anybody. And like, I want to be like very specific or targeted around like what I'm trying to get to add value. I think angels, so current fundraising environment, I think angels have slowed down a lot. You had a huge amount of angels. Everybody was rich from crypto. Cycle had gone up a ton. Every angel was just like, yep, I'll take the max. It was like 250K, 500K to every project spread around forever. That has slowed down a lot. Angels now are like, 25k or like i'm not writing checks anymore on the fund side though a lot of funds still have capital all of the best funds are still investing it's just like tighter it's more selective early stage valuations got to come down maybe that means you don't raise like three different times before you launch and you just like raise build the thing launch and then like 
let basically your presence in the market leverage leverage out versus like trying to do it private. So I think like public valuations have shifted a little bit more in favor versus private, but it's like still possible. I, I, you know, there's still tons of projects getting funded every year. If you're struggling, put ZK in your name and like you'll you'll be funded by next year. Right? <laughs> Fine. Yeah, yeah it, it does seem like it's the season for ZK technology, ZK rollups. If you just like copy paste the ZK rollup or introduce some sort of zero knowledge technology in your project, you can probably get some sort of funding. Uh, yeah, so sure. Sure. the other thing I want to talk about was uh, treasury management, which I find kind of interesting to talk to founders about like how they're managing their treasury because like you, a lot of these founders, they have like a large influx of, of funds. And then you've seen stuff in like the previous bull cycles where I guess the, the biggest violator of this was Three Arrows Capital. They would make like these seed investments and they would say like, ah, and now you have like X amount of money uh, to deploy and like your burn is Y, which is like a fraction of X, you can deposit your your recently raised capital with us, and then we can you know we can investment and invest it and give you returns. Yep. And then you see this all the time in, in terms of like these projects sort of fall off or, or lose their funding because you know they're in these positions where suddenly like their their five year runway is down to like two months uh, if, if they had like their, their treasury on FTX or like through three arrows capital or, or through these other, through, through other people. But then, then again, there's always some sort of greed or some sort of um, like you have X capital and it, a lot of times it's just sitting there and you want to always make your capital work in, in terms of, you know, build, building your company, increasing the treasury, stuff like that. So do you have a, an approach for what you do in terms of like managing risk, but also maximizing the value of what you're holding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean we've we've been through this this whole gamut of everything, and so like yeah, three three arrows was like give us your treasury like right before they basically blew up. They you know tried everything. So like <laughs> you know early on we like we had like 35 years of runway. We're like, okay, like, why don't we just like put some of it, like lend some of it out and then we'll have like unlimited runway. Like now we have positive burn. We're making money. Great. And like early was like, okay, like Genesis is going to give you 8%. Genesis <laughs> blows up, right? So Genesis is going to give you 8%. And then Alameda is like, we'll give you 10%. And you're like, well, you know, FTX is the one like writing the check anyways. Like they're our investor. Like surely that should be okay. And so like Genesis blows up, Alameda blows up. Everybody, all the VCs are like, listen, like get your money in a real bank. Take the money. We put it in SVB, right? We had a hundred million dollars in SVB, like the morning, like the, you know, the day that SVB like shut, like if we hadn't have gotten it out that afternoon, we got it all out, but had we not gotten it out, then like another crisis. And so now it's just the point where it's like, listen, geo diversity matters. Like we don't need to make return. Ultimately, like what are you, you going to make there? Like the risk-free rate in treasury is almost 5%. Like you're gonna make like 8% right now and you're gonna like risk your entire runway on like this extra little Delta. Like maybe it made sense when you're, when you're talking about like the, the Fed rate was like near zero, but like now you're getting compensated almost not at all. And the question, like the thing that really like clarified it to me was just like, listen, like ultimately like you have X years of runway. Do you think you're going to generate a bigger return for your company than like five to 8% per year, right? Like, can you generate more value? And like, if I can't generate more value than like, what the F am I doing here? You know, what is the <laughs> point? And so like, now it's just like pure diversify across a bunch of different banks, like largest institutions you can diversify against like geographic regions and basically like just protect the runway, right? Right. We have in the most aggressive, like assuming we double like two and a half X our team over the next year and a half, and we never make a single dollar ever from anything, we still have like seven to eight years of runway. And so like 
we have a lot of runway realistically talking like 15 plus years. And so it's just like, just protect that and just like build and create value. And like, that's it. That's all that matters. And so our thinking has definitely changed over time, but I would like highly, <laughs> highly suggest to just like protect the value and build the thing. Cause you, you know, you'll, mm. you'll generate way larger returns than like some banker is going to do for you or like whatever, more, more realistically, some DGEN is going to do with leverage uh-huh. CDOs or, uh, you know, GBDC trades. Yeah, absolutely. If wow. you're if you're uh, if you're bullish on the core business, it's more important to to main cap- maintain capital than to like I- I- increase revenue streams with the capital that you do have. Yeah, I was just gonna say that is that is very interesting. How in a pretty short time, in like the last few cycles, like you said, with the treasury rate at five percent, and someone who is running an, a Ponzi scheme more or less is giving eight. So you end up yes, you end up running to the bank, and the bank is. It's not running a Ponzi scheme, but it's extremely leveraged. So now you're like, um, now you're like playing John Wick, hiding gold coins in like different quarters of the world. It is amazing how hard it is to do something as basic as just not getting rugged for just a few years. That's yeah, just um, sit your money somewhere, right? Like that's all you want. Like park <laughs> it. I don't want anybody to invest in it. I don't like just, I want the money to be there when I come back. And like that in itself is difficult, which is crazy. Yeah, it's just pretty, it's pretty wild, especially like the whole, the banking thing yeah. has gone down in the past past few months. And <laughs> we actually talked about this on um, the previous podcast when we talked about USDC, but um, the, like the, the banking crypto situation, it, it seems like like it's deteriorating pretty quickly. Like it's, it's it feels like the the U.S. government is well. First and foremost, the the FDIC is built to protect the American consumer, protect the, the U.S. dollar. Because if the banking system fails, then quite a bit fails with it. But it feels like that it's sort of using the, the current banking situation as an excuse to like underhandedly go after crypto projects by cutting off fiat on ramps and off ramps, and then just making it like increasingly difficult to to do business basically do you get the same sense or like from the business side of things do you get the heavy head so like for us from like the pure the pure technology side like ultimately we don't we don't deal with like the on-ramp like we're like how exchanges need to deal with it and like what Mm -hmm. they feel is just totally different than what we feel um in terms of that so for us like you know we don't feel it at all in that sense but like from just observing what's happening it's very clear that there's like a very concerted effort across like a bunch of different fronts. And this is like New York calls Ethereum a security to like SEC gives Wells notice to Coinbase to like Signature gets like totally rugged for no reason. And just yeah. like, we're shutting you down and selling you off, but like without any of the crypto stuff to like today, CTFC with with CZ. So like, it, it is very, very clear that like the broad stance from the current administration is just like, extremely adversarial it seems in a like in a pretty blanket way like even if you're coinbase in terms of like being a publicly traded company and like at least like as you know conformant as you can be kind of like like from them to you know whatever else maybe maybe if cz is the other end of the spectrum i don't know who's the other end of the spectrum but like you know the full other end of the spectrum, it just like doesn't matter it's everybody and that that itself has been really interesting yeah it, it seems like um coinbase especially was trying their best to be compliant like brian armstrong came out and said like that they, they were in communication with the with the ctfc the, the sec stuff like that and they were making like valid attempts in terms of trying to be as compliant as possible but it just seems like these government organizations weren't as receptive to this and it basically like backhanded them with the the wells notice that they didn't really expect 
happening. So yeah, it's pretty interesting to see what happens going forward with uh, crypto regulation, especially in the US. Before we let yep. you go today, um, is there anything you want to plug or maybe where people can find you on maybe Twitter or if you have anything else coming out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing crazy to plug right now. Uh, you know, maybe maybe next week there might be something, uh, oh, okay. that, you know, after, after, this, uh, <laughs> yeah. after this comes out. No. So, I mean, I'm primordial AA on Twitter, layer zero is layer zero underscore labs, pretty easy to find in general, pretty accessible, but like, no, not nothing specific to plug. Just, uh, I don't know. I like talking about this stuff. I could talk about the tech side of it all day forever. All right, cool. I appreciate you coming on. Andres, you have anything else? No, not really. I was just, uh, I was just going to say that the more technically minded listeners or viewers, they can just find the docs on your website on, on how to use Layer Zero, the product. And it's uh, pretty easy and convenient, I think, if you're doing anything cross-chain. Appreciate it. Yeah, 100%. All right, I appreciate right, you, you coming on. Guys, thanks for having me.